0: Welcome to season number one, episode number one, the inaugural episode of the Splash Considerations podcast, a San Francisco Giants podcast. My name is Justice Delos Santos, and I've been waiting so long to say those words, so long. It's been about eight months since I've been able to hop on the mic, and I'm excited to be back in the game. And I'm also excited to introduce the very first guest in Splash Considerations history, the very brief history of this podcast, about 10 seconds long. Coming off a marathon time of 3 hours, 11 minutes, and 33 seconds, he is the self-proclaimed fastest runner among a legion of baseball writers around the country. He is a proud graduate of the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communications at the Arizona State University. Fresh off a work trip to Miami, he is currently roaming the mean streets of Scottsdale, Arizona. He is recently elected as the chair of the San Francisco-Oakland chapter of the Baseball Writers Association of America. The big mustachio himself, Kerry Crowley. Welcome to the show,
1: Justice. That is about as good of an introduction I could have possibly hoped for. I think it's worth pointing out that I did not pay you to say all of those things. <laughs> extremely kind of you to introduce introduce me as such. Uh, but with regard to the running thing in, in the Baseball Writers Association of America, uh, you know, I don't want to talk poorly about my fellow writers, but we're not exactly the most fit group of people in the world, so. The longer I can keep that going, the better I'll feel about myself because, uh, you know, they they do a whole lot of other things that are far more important better than I do.
0: It's an honor to have you on the show, man. I appreciate, you know, you taking the time out and joining me on this. And I think it's going to be a fun little episode. And today we're going to be doing an off season review. And we're currently recording at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on February 10th. So if anything happens uh, between now and then, you know, edit it in post. But. Any conversation of the Giants offseason, it has to begin with the biggest move of the offseason. And for a variety of reasons, Billy Hamilton coming to the Giants on a... I'm just just (laughs) kidding. The the real big news uh, of the offseason is the Giants bringing on Gabe Kapler, formerly of the Philadelphia Phillies. And I'm not entirely sure where to start because I feel like there are so many different places to start with this from a variety of different angles. But I guess one place that would be a good starting off point is... What was your initial reaction to Kapler being the candidate who the Giants ultimately decided on?
1: Uh, My initial reaction was surprise. I wouldn't say shock because I knew that he had a pre-existing relationship with President of Baseball Operations Farhan Zaidi from their time together in Los Angeles. When Zaidi was the Dodgers general manager and Kapler was the farm director, I knew that One day, Zaidi wanted to hire Kapler and work together again. They had a really strong working relationship in Los Angeles. I was just surprised that they chose to go with Kapler right right away, following in the footsteps of Bruce Bochy, because he has this very complicated legacy, and you can look on the field, you can look off the field. It's complex, it's messy, and it's not something that a Giants organization that has been so public relations conscious for the past 25 years and, and even longer, but really since the new ownership group took over in 1993, now they make every decision with kind of the fan base in mind or how, it, how things are going to be perceived publicly in mind. And this was really one of the first times that we saw the Giants say, we don't care what the outside world is going to say about this hire. Farhan Zaidi was very committed from, to Gabe Kapler from the start of the process, and that showed ultimately in the hire because you look at his history of mishandling sexual assault allegations against Dodgers players uh, in when he was the farm director there. And that's not good. That That is a mark against his resume. And in some fans minds, it's a disqualifier and rightly so for those fans who believe that, but other fans who want to focus just on the baseball side, they, they can look at the Philadelphia Phillies the last few seasons and see a team that had quite a few stars and a team that didn't, post a record above 500 and so there's questions on the field there's questions off the field but from everyone i've talked to in the days since gabe kaffler's hire he is a very uh committed person to forming a new culture in san francisco and moving past the mistakes he made in the past he took responsibility for them he's remorseful he's admitted that he did not handle things the right way both Uh, when he was the farm director of the Dodgers with the -the off-the-field issues and and how he uh, did not report sexual assault allegations to the police. And also with his on-the-field struggles in Philadelphia when he was the manager there, he believes he's learned from those mistakes that he's made in both capacities. It's very hard to talk about Gabe Kapler's on-the-field and off-the-field issues in the same breath because they're just so different. But uh, you talk to everyone in the Giants organization, and so far they are thrilled with the addition of Kapler. He's surprised them. He's been very open. Uh, he's included departments and in decisions that have not been included in the past. And uh, so far they're welcoming him. They like what Kapler has to offer. And uh, I think it'll be interesting to see if the Giants get off to a bad start this season, which they very well could with the roster that's assembled. Uh, how Gabe Caffer will be perceived in April, May, and into June compared to how he's perceived right now.
0: There's a lot of points that I do want to hit on in terms of you know, all of those points that you touched upon, but the one that I kind of want to hit on first is the specifically in the matter of, of PR. And I believe there was a, a quote from Tim Kawakami off The Athletic, and this was in regards to the Madison Bumgarner signing, which we'll get to in a second. But Kawakami wrote, and the thing I continue to respect about Zaidi is he has the guts to ride with his judgment throughout the bumpiest of PR moments and potential nightmares. And I think that's pretty emblematic of how this offseason has been, both in regards to Kappler as well as uh, Bumgarner and to a lesser extent Pilar, which we will go to later. And just being on Twitter in the days leading up to the signing and as well as the day of the signing, as well as the initial press conference, it's clear that this is strictly from a PR perspective perspective this is a huge risk on a multi-level there is the mishandling of the sexual assault there is the lack of success that he did have in philadelphia and then it's also just sort of this that this is sort of that final nail in the coffin in terms of the giants completely moving on to the new era because you're going from bruce bocce to gabe kapler who you'll be hard-pressed to find two managers who are as polar opposites of one another
1: Yeah, I've actually got a story coming out about that at this – or that touches on that at some point this week, and they really are polar opposites because – Bruce Bochy, you know, one end of the spectrum, the ultimate trust-your-gut manager, the ultimate players manager who was just lauded for his communication skills. And Gabe Kapler, kind of the analytics darling, a product of the new age, a farm director uh, with that sort of a background. He's really emphasizing player development, whereas Bochy was so loyal to his veterans. But I think when you think about... Most important qualities and most important aspect for a manager to have and, and to keep in perspective in the job, and that's relating to players and ensuring that everyone is on the same page. And in that regard, Gabe Kaplan. Really wants to follow in the footsteps of Bruce Bochy and learn lessons that he learned uh, when he, you know when he left San Diego. Many people thought that Bruce Bochy was not going to be the great manager that he turned out to be in San Francisco. And granted, he was in San Diego for 12 seasons, whereas Kaplan was in Philadelphia for just two. But you know he's going to prioritize communication. He's going to make sure that every player feels involved in the decision-making process. That every coach feels involved in the decision-making process. So when you get down to the heart of it. They're both trying to be players' managers, and whether Kaffler can be as effective as Bochy will take years and years and years uh, just for him to earn that trust and loyalty from the players that he manages when, when they walk in the room to meet him for the first time. But uh, he really will try to emulate Bruce Bochy in many regards, whether he knows it or not, because th- these are kind of the philosophies that Kaffler has entered the organization with.
0: Yeah, and I was mentioning this, uh, we were talking in the days leading up to the podcast, I asked you when Bruce Bochy was initially hired, like what grade were you in? Because for a, for a large majority of our lives, Bochi has been the only manager that a lot of people have known in San Francisco, especially people around our age. So in terms of gaining acceptance, you know, the players are one thing that's sort of one half of the battle in terms of, is he going to have that ability to win over the players? Is he going to be able to have that ability to let his group of guys know that whatever happened in the past was in the past and that he's trying to move forward? And as you mentioned, when Bruce Bochy came to San Francisco, he wasn't initially expected to be the manager that he ended up leaving. He came in as someone that was under the Padres for 12 seasons and in terms of legacy, you didn't really know where that was going to go. And he exits essentially a surefire Hall of Famer. In terms of acceptance... I think there's also the acceptance from, you know, the fan standpoint of it where in terms of the potential hires that could have been brought into the team, I think that Kapler is going to have the highest threshold for, you know, what the fans, what it's sort of going to take, so to say, for the fans to be actually willing to, you know, accept him as one of their own, especially because you are like, on one end of it, you're replacing a legend, but on the other end of it, there's like, the baggage that he does come with.
1: Yeah, and I, I've had conversations with managers at winter meetings and coaches and, and people in the game, and all it really comes down to is can you win? And I know that that's not what a whole lot of fans want to hear, but subconsciously if Gabe Kaffler goes out there and the Giants shock everyone and they win 90 games this year and they take a wild card spot, the acceptance is going to be through the roof. That That's just how sports works, whether we like it to or not. You know, for socially conscious people, it's a little harder to swallow. For people who don't want their sports and politics to mix, or or sports and off the field life to mix, uh, it's easier to accept. But regardless, uh, you know, he, you can look at this any way. But it comes down to: Can he win? Can he develop? And can he turn the Giants into a contender again? Because if he does, he will be embraced just like Dusty Baker, just like Felipe Alou, just like Bruce Bochy were. But if he doesn't, he'll be looking for a new job in a few years.
0: And you were there at the initial press conference, and I really liked your lead in terms of you know, this idea that the Giants won championships off pitching and defense, but that's not really the strategy that you want to employ when you're introducing your new manager.
1: And I'm, just cur- <laughs> I'm
0: curious, what was the energy like in that room?
1: Yeah, it was extremely tense. It was extremely tense, and what I would say to anyone who wonders why, rightfully so, there are so many fans who were up in arms about the hire of Gabe Kapler that it was the only way the press conference could go because at the end of the day, writers are are looking to ask the questions that the fans want to know answers to, and writers are looking to provide fans with answers as to why things took place the way they did, and so with so much uneasiness and so much anger in the Giants community uh, both externally and internally. You know, there were people in the building who weren't happy with the hire. Uh, I think that the the, top, the press conference had to go the way it did. I think that the Giants ultimately handled it well, but uh, you know, I'll go back to the lead that I wrote that day. If you're playing pitching and defense on day one at a press conference, it's probably not the ideal strategy. And, and can they overcome that? Can they eventually Play offense, of course, and you know a, a, a few long winning streaks will do that. But that's essentially how it had to be on day one.
0: Yeah, and we've alluded to it a couple times over the course of this little conversation. But I think it is worth sort of noting very explicitly the the past that we're sort of referring to, which was there was a series, there was a couple articles that were released in early 2019. Uh, the first of which was by the Washington Post, which detailed a story um, in 2015. A then-17-year-old girl sent an email to Kapler, who was, again, at the time, working for uh, the Dodgers as the director of player development. She had been drinking with two Dodger minor leaguers and two other women at a Glendale-Hampton inn. She threw up on the bed. The two women proceeded to throw her out and started uh, assaulting her. Instead of coming to her aid, one of the Dodgers minor leaguers filmed her. Um, Then after the fact, she sends an an email to Kapler, sort of detailing what happens. It eventually comes out that um, she was a victim of sexual assault prior to that. And then I believe three days after the Washington Post's initial article, the Sports Illustrated comes out and says there was two other incidents as well. And, you know, in terms of, you sort of alluded to it, it's, you know, what ultimately matters at the end of the day is whether or not you have the ability to win. You also alluded to how Kapler said he sort of learned from this incident. But in terms of strictly on, in terms of the off the field or on the field, you know, that's sort of one thing, you know, when losses kind of pile up in this, the reality of the situation is that more likely than not, this is going to be a rebuilding season. That's one end of this whole situation. But, you know, when you have, when you throw all of this in the mix, that sort of uphill battle just becomes so much more difficult. And, like you said, like sort sort of winning heals all, so to say, but you know, once you start getting into July, August, September, and you can imagine that this Giants team is gonna be a team that's well over five hundred, it's sort of it doesn't make the job of trying to win over fans any easier than it already is.
1: Yeah, and what I would say to that is winning doesn't heal all in San Francisco. Oh, yeah, I mean, winning yeah. winning heals most. And so there there's going to be a certain segment of the fan base that uh, because of what's transpired in Kapler's past, we'll never embrace him and, and will not buy tickets. And that's their decision. Uh, Major League Baseball cleared him of any uh, wrongdoing in the uh, report that it put out. And so Kapler still able to get jobs. He's still able to be employed. And th- you know, this went down when he was in Philadelphia, you know, all this stuff coming out where he's the manager. So he's already faced the heat about this and, and he knows uh, what the public perception of him is. And so I think that, one thing that he has really learned from uh this these situations and how things have been reported and and how Uh, fan bases have reacted to him, is all he can do is the next day he can go out and try to be the person that, uh, you know, his parents raised him to be. And he's got a very interesting background in that regard. You know, he grew up in California on the 2014 uh, Red Sox. He was the only player who uh, said that they were a registered Democrat. I I wasn't sure why that was a a study that was conducted on that team, but I thought that it was really interesting. Uh, He said uh, upon his hiring in San Francisco that social justice – is a passion for him and his family. And so, uh, you know, if he continues to put the right foot forward in those regards, I think that he, he can win over a a small segment of the fan base that, uh, that does believe in second chances, that does believe that you can learn from previous mistakes. But again, so much of this is uh, a a small portion of people because social media kind of clouds our views of what people think of various people because there's always going to be so so many outspoken voices. Um, And and so, you know, I I would love to have sat in on some of the dinners that uh, season ticket holders had with Gabe Kapler this year or this winter uh, and and seeing kind of if he turned the room at all, uh, because I know that there were angry members of the fan base, angry season ticket holders, but I I wanted to know if one-on-one interactions kind of uh, changed people's minds. And that's something that I'll ask more about during spring training.
0: It is worth, you know, mentioning that when it does come to, you know, not even just Kepler in particular, but individuals that may have some sort of a checkered past, you, you know, I think especially in terms of, you know, Twitter and sort of cancel culture, it's very easy for people to end up in this very one-dimensional box. When in reality, that's not necessarily the reality of how, you know, human growth works. It's sort of you have to allow people their opportunity to learn from their mistakes and to advance forward. And if people are sort of put in that box, they're not really allowed to make the changes that they may need to eventually, if they are in another situation like that, to make the proper choices. So, and this is honestly a a very complicated subject, one that can honestly be talked about for hours on end. And I don't want to sound as if I'm defending Kapler or defending Kapler's actions, but we are constantly, you know, sort of evolving. And what we consider right one day, we may consider wrong tomorrow. And I can say for a fact that if I was to, you know, sort of examine my high school self from a distance and sort of examine his actions, I would kind of be a guess. I'd be like, what are you kind of doing? Uh, you sort of alluded to it, how, you know, Kapler has learned from the situation. And, you know, it is not fair to him to just sort of say, that's your past. That's always going to be your past, That's going to continue to be your our future.
1: Yeah, and I would agree with all of all of what you just said there and I don't know that I have a whole lot more to add to it but uh but yeah, I, I think that that kind of ties that
0: that up. Yeah, so from one PR nightmare so to say <laughs> uh to another, I'd say the second biggest news of this offseason was uh the Madison Bumgarner uh deciding to sign with the Arizona Dimebacks. He signed uh, a 5-year, uh, 85 million dollar deal with the uh, to stay in the division and as we alluded to, there was, um, there was also the decision to non-tender P- uh, Kevin Pilar. but I mainly want to stay in the realm of Madison Bumgarner for now, and then we can sort of get to Pilar as well as uh, Will Smith. And just out of curiosity, I did say that the Kapler one may have been the more polarizing of the two, but based on sort of conversations that you've had, as well as your coverage of the situation, which of the two do you think was sort of ruffled more feathers?
1: Uh, I think that most fans at least had an understanding that when Bumgarner became a free agent, he was going to look around. And so the fact that the Giants did not give him the biggest offer, you know, you can only control so much of that. The Giants controlled the Gabe Kapler situation from start to finish. They conducted the search. uh, They whittled down the candidates, and they chose him knowing that there would be blowback, whereas With Bumgarner and with the way that things have unfolded for the Giants, ever since they gave all these players extensions, whether it be Buster Posey, Brandon Crawford, Brandon Belt, whoever got extensions and Bumgarner didn't, uh, I think that fans have seen that five-year, six-year deals can hurt you in the long run. And so they were disappointed to see Madison Bumgarner go, but uh, I think that it was a little easier to accept that Bumgarner wanted a fresh beginning. Uh, The Giants are in this transition era, and sure, they would have loved for Bumgarner to lead that next era, but I think that fans at least had the foresight to see that th- this could unfold this way.
0: And when you sort of think about the past two years and sort of how events have transpired, there is a there is sort of a reality in which Bumgarner ends up on a deal that sort of would bring him to be a giant into his mid-30s, and there have been a lot of talks of an extension at various points of times, obviously, they didn't come to fruition. But would you want to sort of detail sort of these last several years? Because there was, I've I've seen a lot of things, there was talks in a 2017, there was talks in 2018, as well, and sort of how those talks came about, and then sort of how they ended up not happening.
1: Yeah, I'll try and sum this up as quickly as possible. So Bumgarner in 2012 signs a a five-year, $35 million extension with the Giants when he was a relatively unproven pitcher. It was seen as a gamble for both sides. And so he signed that in April of 2012, five years, but there's two player and team options on the end of that. So the team exercise – or team options, I should say. So the team could exercise options uh, that would bring it out to about a seven-year, $60 million deal by the end of it. And so it ran through the 2019 season, effectively. And so he wins the 2014 World Series, becomes a postseason legend, and basically does it uh, on his own. Madison Bumgarner was the World Series MVP. There was no question that he was going to be the MVP. It was that heroic of a performance. The Giants could have gone to him right then and there and said, let's tear up this deal. Let's get you paid. Let's make sure that you're a Giant forever. Let's get an an eight-year deal done, something like that. They didn't. 2016 rolls around. He wills them through to the postseason, wins the wild card game, essentially on his own, nine innings. They needed the Connor Gillespie home run uh, for, for some offense and, and to bring in some runs. But he was pitching in a tense matchup all night long, nine innings, four hits, was just brilliant, would have gone back out for the 10th inning. And the Giants don't end up advancing in the NLDS. But at that point, that was probably the most logical time for the Giants to say, okay, Everyone else has gotten paid. Buster, Brandon, Brandon have all been paid. It's your turn. And they didn't. And so in 2017, early in the season, there were apparently discussions from what I've been told from both sides, because Bumgarner wanted to know where he stood, about a possible extension. And in April of 2017, he goes on the uh, dirt biking adventure, takes a spill, uh, hurts his shoulder, misses three months of the season. And from that point forward, the relationship was never really the same. I I think that the Giants have said that they were going to discuss an extension in 2018 before he was hit on the hand by the line drive that wiped out three months of the season for him. But I'm not sure how much I buy that. I think that after the 2017 injury, uh, the way he did it and uh, the timing of it, they just were never really keen on a long-term extension. And so it got to the point where... Probably sometime in 2018, Bumgarner decided, okay, forget this. I'm hitting free agency no matter what. And by the time free agency rolled around at the end of last season, the Giants uh, were in a rebuild. And it was very clear that uh, they probably weren't going to be competitive for the next few seasons. And so he evaluated all his options. He wanted to go to a team that could realistically win on an annual basis and also was in a comfortable setting. And so where is he most comfortable pitching? The National League West ballparks. And so that's why he chose the Arizona Diamondbacks.
0: And, you know, when you do consider the sort of the current administration, it isn't as shocking that they would, you know, sort of allow him to walk. There was a quote by Zaidi where he said, we need to be careful about our recent history, about creating too many long term commitments that can get us back in the jam that we recently put ourselves in. And in having some time to think about this deal from all sides, from a Diamondback side, from a Giants Giants side, From a Bumgarner side, the more I'm starting to think that I think this is sort of the best that the best situation for both sides on on one hand, it does hurt that you are losing Madison Bumgarner instead of allowing him to retire as a giant in the same way that Matt Cain did. But what you are what you do have is that you still are able to maintain a lot of your financial flexibility going forward, which can allow them to make certain moves down the line that might allow them to conjure up some assets. And then you also don't have to put yourself in a situation where you are obligated to have Madison Bumgarner out there to pitch 33 uh, times a year. You do have this opportunity to give some of the young guys an opportunity to pitch. And for Madison Bumgarner, he gets that sort of fresh start. He does get to stay in the National League West. He still does get to hit. So while it does sting, and it is going to be kind of weird to see Madison Bumgarner pitching in a non-Giants uniform I think considering all that's transpired over the last couple of years, this was ultimately the best move for him. And there's also the, the idea that there's not really much left for him to accomplish. So it does kind of sting if you're a Giants fan, but if you're looking forward, if you want to you know, foster in the, sort of that new era and make sure that you're not tying yourself down with long-term contracts that kind of got yourself in this situation in the first place, this was ultimately one of those sour pills that you do have to swallow.
1: Yeah, and I think it'll be easier for Giants fans to swallow if Bumgarner uh, really struggles over the next five years, as the, some members of the analytics crowd have predicted that he will. I'm of the belief that Bumgarner could pitch effectively for 10 more years. I think that five years at $85 million was probably a decent value for a pitcher of his caliber, but again, we won't know until we're three, four, five years into this deal uh, how it looks, and so I, I think that you know we're, we're just all kind of bracing ourselves for the new reality that things are going to be different, not only for the Giants, but for Bumgarner. And he's going to begin writing a new chapter of his story somewhere else. And uh, five years ago, no one expected that to be the case. But I think a year ago, uh, I think that people started to really prepare for that reality.
0: Yeah, I think that Bumgarner, to that point about him being able to pitch into his 30s, I do think that he still has a lot left in the tank. Because when you do look at the injuries that he has suffered, none of them had been pitching related. One was the dirt by accident, and then the other was an errant line drive. So in terms of his durability, I think that, you know, given the way that he's sort of adapted to being able to pitch without having his stuff in the mid-90s like he may have, he is going to have that opportunity to still be an effective player as he ages. And in terms of the actual deal, you know, the one name that I keep put together with Bumgarner in this offseason is Garrett Cole. Not necessarily in terms of their value, but I see the 324 million that Cole is making compared to the 85 million that Bumgarner is making, and I'm I'm kind of thinking is like is Garrett Cole really four times the pitcher that Madison Bumgarner is? That's not exactly the best way to go about it, but I, I sort of think about that, and I'm like, you know, I still think that given that none of his injuries have been pitching related, I still think he's going to have that opportunity to really age sort of gracefully.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, even back in 2014, he was not throwing 95 miles an hour. It was a hard 93 with the cutter, which is sensational. But, you know, his his velocity hasn't dropped off to the point where he's like a Barry Zito type uh, late in his career. Madison Lumgarner has still proven that he can be effective. I think he'll need to mix in a few more curveballs, maybe refine the changeup a little bit more. But he studies the game with a relentless dedication, and so that is never going to change. He's always going to look for every possible weakness that hitters have and how he can exploit it, and I think that that's why the second half of his career will be just as fun to follow as the first.
0: And if you consider last season sort of a down year, a lot of pitchers would kill for a down year that has like a 390 ERA over 200 innings, which, you know, isn't as great as when he was an all-star, but still worth 3.2 war via fan graphs, striking out a shade under 9%. Uh, nine innings as well as walking under two per nine innings. So, you know, it may not have been the best year for him in terms of, you know, where his career has amounted to be, but we, we've seen a lot of times where going to a new destination, sort of having that fresh start can really give someone's career a second wind.
1: Yeah, and, and look, I don't care what anyone in the analytics world says, 200 innings is supremely valuable, especially in today's game. I think it's more valuable than it was 10 years ago because you've got so many pitchers who are maxed out at five, six innings who really haven't seen the third time through an order a whole lot in their careers. And Madison Muppengarner has almost always done that. And so maybe he won't be a 200-inning guy over the next five years, but it would shock me if he was anything under 180. He can keep the pitch count down. He can pitch to contact effectively. I just think that there's value in that, and that uh, some of these front offices that are so focused on analytics have overlooked one of the most traditional stats, and in that's innings pitched.
0: I think B and you could talk all day about sort of the, <laughs> old, the, the old school baseball mentality versus the new school. I, I, I sort of take pride in sort of being somewhat well-versed in analytics, I'll, you know, in terms of, I won't just throw in batting average, I'll throw in, you know, your WOBA, your WRC+, your ISO, BABIP, all of that stuff, but in terms of, You know, just being able to, you know, watch the game, the the eye level test. I still, I agree. I think there is definitely value in terms of being able to throw 200 innings. And I, I never really considered your point about, you know, it may be more valuable in today's game as opposed to maybe 10 years ago. Because if you're throwing 200 innings in this era, that means you've been effective to the point where you can go to that third time in the lineup without getting dinged. And that your manager does have that trust in you in terms of – and especially considering how rare it has been to see a guy that throws that many innings in a season.
1: Yeah, look, if if there are 30 teams in baseball and you polled all 30 presidents of baseball operations or GMs or the highest executives uh, at at each team and asked them, do you have enough pitching right now? They would all say no. They would all say that they can go out and add more pitching. And so what that tells me is they don't have – enough quality arms to cover all the innings of a 162-game season plus the postseason. You look at the Washington Nationals last year, and their bullpen was totally exposed during the first half of the season. It was one of the worst bullpens in Major League history. And they still won the World Series, but that's because you've got pitchers like Scherzer and Strasburg who can eat innings when it matters most, and that's in the postseason. And Madison Bumgarner, when it comes down to it, is going to give you a healthy six or seven when it matters most.
0: And it'll be interesting to see just him, in, you know, in, to re- sort of wrap this up, just in a Diamondbacks uniform, that first time he comes to, I was about to call it at and I, I still got to get used to calling it, I'm st- I am still got to get used to calling it Oracle, but when the first time he rolls through to Oracle, it's, I think it's going to be, it'll be a fun day, regardless of the outcome, I think it'll be a, a fun time to just see what sort of reception he gets.
1: I Just to add to that real quick, I really hope that he's targeted to pitch that first series, the D-backs, have at Oracle Park, because I think that attendance will be high. I think that uh, the reception he gets will be outstanding. And I think that the tribute video that uh, SFG Productions cooks up for Madison Bumgarner will be one for the ages.
0: Definitely going to be some tears in the crowd in that one. <laughs> so it's so a sort of uh, transition. We did allude to it a little bit, but along with losing Bumgarner, the Giants did lose uh, Kevin Pillar. They non-tendered him as well as Will Smith. Uh, they did offer a qualifying offer to both Smith and Bumgarner, which allows the Giants to grab that additional draft pick. But I also, you know, you did make that point about how there can be that vocal minority on Twitter, but it seemed to me the Kevin Pollard decision was very, very unpopular. I sort of, I understood why, but I think just, if you look solely at the comments that I was seeing, it, he was sort of made out to be like a, You know, a perennial all star and people love hustle.
1: They love being entertained when they watch baseball. When you're sitting there in the stands, you are not looking at a guy's WOBA or a guy's WRC plus or a guy's on base percentage. You're looking at whose uniform is the dirtiest, who's going all out, and who's giving you a hard ninety. And Kevin Pilar plays the game like it's his last game every single day. And So that really endears a player to a fan base, and it is not hard to see why Giants fans were so upset that they couldn't find a spot for him, but it's also, uh, like you said, confounding that the attachment was so strong, knowing what some of the uh, analytics and, and the numbers revealed, because, quite frankly, he was not an above-average offensive player. And if you value defensive metrics, he was not really an above-average defensive player. Uh, What I liked about Pilar and what the pitching staff liked about Pilar is he was willing to give up singles so that he could play further back and take away doubles and triples in the gap. And he knows that uh, going side-to-side on a ball is a lot easier for him than going back on a ball. And so that's why you see the heroics in the outfield that you do when he dives but you know i'm I'm never going to blame a fan for falling in love with the way a player plays the game because at the end of the day way too many people sit at home and try to play gm and try to play uh, armchair president of baseball operations when really the game is so much more enjoyable when you just watch it unfold and you see your favorite players doing things that uh that make you smile and, and make you cheer and so uh, I, I would never blame anyone for loving Kevin Pilar the way they did, because he played harder than all uh, 17 other guys on the field, uh, and and he did that on a daily basis.
0: I think that was definitely a little like the the new, new school in me, just because, you know, while I said I do like to merge the old and the new school, there's a part of me where I just, I got to look at the numbers and I think about, mm, like, I, d- would the Giants want to spend uh, $10 million in terms of you know, a guy that's hovered in sort of the the 80s of WRC Plus over the last four years. But I definitely do think there is something to the point of, you know, him being one of the guys that consistently hustles, consistently gives his all every single game, just because it's not only the individual impact that a player like that has, and it's sort of those things that get buried uh, beyond the box score. It's sort of your ability as a player to not only influence uh, your team on an individual level, but to influence the guy, the other guys around you, and if you're one, if you are the hardest single guy out of the other guys on the field, maybe that influences one of the someone else to your left, someone else to your right to give more. But you know, I I definitely do understand why it was he was uh, well received as he was, but in a similar vein to the Bumgarner decision, I think that this was a decision where it was in the Giants' best interest to move forward and allow the younger guys that opportunity to get those reps where Pilar may have taken those reps.
1: Yeah, I think that Pilar is a really, really solid option as a fourth outfielder on a championship-caliber team. I think that if you want someone for, uh, you know, a matchup purpose or late-game defense, throw him in there, and he's going to be excellent for your clubhouse. He's going to be excellent for your fan base, and he's going to come up big in a big moment. But if you're talking about a rebuilding club, Kevin Pillar is probably not the best player to have around because he still wants everyday reps and the Giants want to give those at-bats to players like Mikey Yastrzemski, players like Jalen Davis, players like Austin Slater, who haven't yet had the opportunity to prove themselves and could be members of the future core that the Giants are trying to identify.
0: Another decision that's you know very analytically driven, maybe a little unpopular, but in terms of going forward, there's definitely a logic as to why uh, this decision was made. But, you know, we're talking about Bumgarner moving on, we're talking about Boshi moving on, and we're talking about an administration that really wants to usher in the next chapter of Giants baseball, as analytically driven, as sort of PR nightmarish as it may be. But in terms of, you know, a little positive buzz after all of these uh, incidents, the Giants fans did get a little, they sort of had a bone toss to them, so to say, in terms of the Giants bringing back hundred Pence on a one-year major league deal worth $3 million. and I was a little surprised that the Giants ultimately ended up bringing him back, not necessarily in terms of ability, but when you do want to move forward as and sort of usher in that next chapter, it was a little shocking that the Giants would sort of go back into the well and bring back a former member of those championship teams.
1: And I think it speaks to how important uh, culture and the idea of clubhouse chemistry uh, still is to a team like the Giants who you know have been criticized by their fans for focusing too much on analytics, stripping the fun away from baseball and focusing too much on statistics. And I think that Farhan Zaidi and Gabe Kapler still realize the uh, effects that positive energy can have on a clubhouse. And when you're talking about Hunter Pence, you're talking about a player who provides real value as a matchup option against left-handed pitchers. But what he brings off the field is so much more important. And so, When you've got a ton of young outfielders trying to find their way at the major league level, trying to do things the right way, and uh, trying to learn how to become effective major league players and and kind of create those habits that make them successful, there's no better person to have around than Hunter Pence. You can have a 13-person coaching staff. You can have a relentlessly positive manager in Gabe Kapler. But if you don't have someone in uniform out there doing it on the field, the message isn't quite conveyed in the same way, and so I think that's one of the reasons that the Giants were open to the reunion with Pence.
0: And in terms of finding guys that are, are going to, you know, energize that clubhouse, be a positive influence, you're not going to find too many guys like Pence. And in terms of that three million that they're giving him, I see some of that, you know, in terms of being a left-handed platoon guy, in terms of you know providing on the field output, but I also see a majority of that in terms of just being an influence to these younger guys and you know there was the you know him back in the 2012 playoffs the whole yes 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 thing re-energizing the guys it doesn't matter if he's in san francisco cincinnati the dominican republic he just has this natural tendency to bring out the best in the guys that are surrounding him and even if it's a season where he doesn't hit that well i think that regardless of his on the field play the impact that he's going to leave on this young guy whether they're outfielders infielders pitchers Regardless, I think that the impact that he's going to bring in this individual season and if the Giants end up being a playoff team in, say, 2021, I think you could you know, attribute a lot of that to sort of what Pence brings to this team this year as they are going through these tough times.
1: Yeah, I, I, I would put it this way. If you were starting a company tomorrow and you had to hire from a pool of baseball players and you had to pick one person uh, to come and be an asset to your company, you, you interview all 25 guys on the Giants opening day roster, you hire Hunter Pence. He, he stands out that much for his charisma, uh, his team building chemistry, and the way he involves others in absolutely everything he does. And so, so really it comes down to that. The Giants aren't just paying uh, for the 80 games he'll play this season. They're paying uh, for the 162 that he'll be in the clubhouse or, or however long he will be in the clubhouse.
0: And in terms of another pair of guys that the Giants uh, brought on to sort of switch gears from the position players, uh, the Giants also brought on Kevin Gausman and Drew Smiley, a pair of pitchers who were at one point considered the future of the league. Um, That didn't necessarily turn out for uh, different reasons. But I'm very interested in both of these signings, not necessarily in terms of Know a long term future with the Giants, but sort of in that Drew Pomeran sense, in that if these guys perform well, that they could potentially be someone a pair of pitchers that the Giants flip in terms of getting another Mauricio Dubon type later down the line.
1: Yeah, look, if Gossman doesn't uh, just be lights out in the rotation this year, the Giants will audition him in the bullpen. There's no question in my mind that they would even use him in the ninth inning in a closer role because. His stuff can play up out of the bullpen. They saw that last year when he was in Cincinnati. And Smiley can be a durable presence for the rotation, but he could also be a matchup guy who comes in one inning, two innings at a time out of of the pen in relief. And I think that we're going to see the Giants before the trade deadline kind of audition those guys in a variety of roles. So to me, they'll start the season in the rotation, but unless they're really building their value there, I think that they'll get opportunities – uh, to show their talents in various ways. And, you know, if you're far anxiety, you're sure hoping that both of those guys have better April's, May's, and June's than Drew Pomeranz had. But Pomeranz was awesome in July, and you saw what that did for them. They flipped him for Dubon, who could be an everyday player this year. And uh, they're hopeful that the same thing could happen with both Gossman and Smiley.
0: Yeah, to apply a couple of numbers to what you were saying about uh, Gossman, in uh, 16 starts with the Braves last year, he had a 6.19 ERA he eventually found his way on, uh, on the Cincinnati Reds where he came in relief. He made 15 appearances and he had a much better ERA, 4.03, which, you know, isn't the greatest in the world, but if you look at both his fielding independent pitching and expected fielding independent pitching, they kind of, for those that are unfamiliar with these numbers, they kind of operate the same way as ERA, where the lower the better. His fielding independent pitching was 3.17. His expected was 2.49. Sorry to go all new school but I just wanted to throw <laughs> this in for this the sake of, you know, presenting an idea. He struck out 11.69 per 9 while only walking 2.01. That was as a reliever in Cincinnati. In terms of him going into the bullpen, in particular, I wouldn't be as shocked if he's the one of the two. Like if one or the other had to go, I wouldn't be as shocked if it's him. Not only because he has um the potential to be that elite uh guy, but because He's essentially at this point in his career a two pitch guy where he has his fastball, but he also has a uh, fantastic splitter. I believe last year uh, uh, batters only hit uh, 213 against that splitter, but I've, I think in previous years they hit even lower than that. Plus, you know, losing Smith, I think one of their only proven options out of you know in terms of late inning, big, high leverage situations this year is Tony Watson.
1: Yeah, I mean, I tend to believe that any team can craft enough depth to conjure together a decent bullpen. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, you, you have to be willing to cycle through arms and give various guys opportunities to get there because relief pitchers, they're relief pitchers for a reason. Everyone comes up as a starter or, or is drafted as a starter, uh, and then uh, you go to the bullpen when things aren't working for you or you've only got two pitches. And you mentioned Gossman with that that really solid splitter. And I think the Giants – in their free agent pitch to him, came up with different ways that they could maximize that pitch and, and really presented some, uh, some new analytical ideas to him uh, that caught his eye and helped convince him to sign with San Francisco. So I, I definitely think you're right there, Justice, in saying that uh, Gossman could definitely end up in the bullpen, uh, even if he's decent as a starter, uh, just because that might be where he's most effective.
0: And I'm also interested in Smiley this year as well, not necessarily in terms of reliever or as a starter, but just how he performs this year because of all that he's sort of gone through over the past couple seasons. Uh, He missed the entirety of 2017 and 2018, came back in 2019, really struggled with the Rangers, uh, ended up on the Phillies with Kapler, actually, and, you know... The the actual overall numbers were actually pretty encouraging. In 12 starts with the Phillies, he had a 4.45 ERA. But in the month of September, he finished incredibly strong. He had a 3.65 ERA over those last five starts. He struck out 30 and walked only 9. And, you know, having finished the season that strong getting a little bit of confidence back after all that he had sort of been through over those last couple of years. I'm really interested to see just what this upcoming season looks like for him now that he's finally got a little momentum in his fa- in his sort of corner.
1: Yeah, and he was decent last year for Kapler at the end of the year in Philadelphia. I remember watching him against the Giants and thinking, how did this guy's ERA get so high? Because uh, he commands the strike zone uh, when he's on and he's got a few different pitches that can keep guys off balance. Career ERA 4.16 suggests that uh, you know that there's a lot left there in the tank for Drew Smiley, even though he has battled injuries, but only 30 years old, still can be effective. And if he has a bounce-back year for San Francisco, it could go a long way toward helping them at the trade deadline because you look at what they got for Drew Pomeranz. Drew Smiley, if he's better during the first half, could get them a little bit more.
0: Moving on to another deal, the first uh, multi-year deal of the Zaidi. Zyde- Error goes to Wilmer Flores. Uh, John Heyman reported that the deal is worth a uh, 2 years plus an option and will be upwards uh, worth upwards of 6 million. I remember quote tweeting you the day uh when he was signed because one of your points uh, was that he could, you know, this is a guy that can play essentially all four positions in the infield and you know, he, you noted that he's played at least 1000 innings at first, second, third and short. Uh sort of the the bad to that is that he's a negative a defensive run saved at all of those positions but this is a guy you know you know last season in 89 games a 317 batting average that's a career high and when you start looking at the you know the plethora of uh, infield options that the Giants will have off the bench I think that he is most definitely the headliner to be one of those guys who particularly with Crawford and Belt can be a guy that comes in to hit against left-handed pitching and be an effective uh, player in that position
1: yeah, I think that the Wilmer Fl- Flores signing was a really solid one for the Giants. And uh, it, it actually surprised me that he only got about $6 million because I think that Flores provides so much value in that he can go anywhere on any given day. So if you don't want to put someone on the injured list because they're hurt and they're going to miss a few games. You put Wilmer Flores at that position. If you've got a late-inning matchup where you don't really like Brandon Belt's numbers against someone, but uh, you want to keep Belt in the game, throw him out in left field, put Flores at first base, and then the following inning, bring in a substitute, put Flores at second or short, and then put Belt back at first. There's just so many different things you can do with a lineup with a Wilmer Flores type. And like you mentioned, the the defense isn't great, but just the fact that he can go out there and be a little more comfortable than the average person at each position, if if you're really trying to mix and match, is very helpful for Gabe Kapler.
0: That's a signing that's you know, very emblematic of this administration, someone that is very versatile, as you mentioned, that could play a variety of different positions. And, you know, while the you know analytics may not be as friendly in terms of his defense, he is sort of the definitive 2020 baseball player and that he can do a lot of various things for you, especially in that role off the bench where, you know, if he is, you know, if that's one of the guys that you have coming off the bench, that's an incredibly valuable asset to have.
1: Yeah, and and you look at this Giants bench, they don't really think about it as a starting team and a bench team anymore. They think about it as 13 position players who are all going to play frequently during the week. You're not going to see someone play seven days a week. You're going to see the best players or or the uh, hottest players at the moment playing five or six times a week and every bench player you know, making an appearance at least three, probably four times a week.
0: And the last bit of the major news of this offseason that I want to hit on was the uh, Will Wilson Zach Cozart trade. The Giants really leveraging the financial flexibility that they do have in order to sort of take on the Zach Cozart contract. They end up waiving Zach Cozart and they're going to bite the bullet on the 13 million plus that's owed to him. But this is sort of something that I wouldn't be shocked to see more of it with the Giants going forward. They, you know, they had a lot of financial flexibility heading into this offseason and they were sort of able to leverage that into taking on this contract from the Angels so that they could eventually make uh, that Anthony Rendon deal come to fruition. And Will Wilson, I believe MLB Pipeline currently has him as the, or the Giants' 10th best prospect. But if you can acquire just a multitude of these guys and leverage, that, and leverage the financial flexibility that you do have, that's how you're going to end up replenishing this stock system. And that's how you're going to find those diamonds in the rough as time goes on.
1: Yeah, you really are, and uh, I was quite frankly surprised that we didn't see at least one more of those type of deals uh, this off season. Maybe the Padres didn't want to part with Will Myers with the inner division foe or the Giants' asking price was too much. Either way, uh, I just think that it's a great way to accumulate talent, and for a Giants team that has deep pockets and will always have deep pockets, uh, this is a strategy that you can employ to get young talent, you know, say you miss on a draft pick one year, uh, but you still want a first rounder up the middle, you can go out and trade for them. You, you can go out and use your leverage, uh, your financial leverage, to be creative. And, uh, you know, it was termed uh, by one reporter as an NBA-style deal, and I thought that that was the best way to look at it.
0: Yeah, in terms of that NBA-style deal, the right when the Giants made this move, I instantly thought of, the Brooklyn Nets I can't remember the specifics of the deals but I remember I can't remember the deals but I remember them being in the in the news cycle very often about taking on these big contracts so that they could acquire draft capital and it's not gonna you're not gonna get like a top five pick in terms of making one of these deals but you never know who you're gonna be able to find and you know while Will Wilson is you know currently rated 10th he could he could go off next season and you know shoot up to top five in, in the farm system so you are gonna to have to take a lot of swings on guys in terms of prospects. Prospects in baseball aren't as much of a sure thing as they are in other sports. But when you do have an when you do have a total of these guys, you are gonna be able to eventually hit on one, and that's what the Giants are sort of banking on right now.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know they they got nothing out of Zach coser He he was DFA'd right away. But Will Wilson plays a position where. He could be versatile. He could play second and short, and he will this season. Maybe he's athletic enough to play the outfield. When you acquire guys who are up-the-middle talents, uh, you can do a lot more with them. And so uh, they may not eventually stick at the shortstop position or stick at the center field position, but uh, they have a higher likelihood of making it to the big leagues because you can ultimately make them more versatile because they're typically more athletic players. So just the type of player that they targeted in the Will Wilson deal I thought was a strong idea.
0: And in addition to all of the guys that we've talked about today that are going to, barring the unlikely B on the Major League roster, the Giants have also signed a lot of very interesting players to minor league deals. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, Billy Hamilton, but you also have uh, Yomer Sanchez. You released an article today about the five guys that, are, that might end up coming onto this uh, Major League roster. So... Of all of the guys that the Giants have signed to minor league deals, who are sort of the guys that uh, catch your attention as guys that can make it onto the major league roster?
1: Uh, Well, right off the bat, 2019 American League go glove winner at second base, Yolmer Sanchez. He was non-tendered by the White Sox this offseason. Gabe Kapler mentioned him the other day as a possibility to win an everyday job at second base. So when you're talking about a guy who could win an everyday job, you're probably talking about someone who could stick in a part-time role too. He's helped by the fact that he's defensively versatile, that he's a switch hitter, so you can uh, send him over to the plate on both sides. And granted, he doesn't have a great on-base percentage, but you know if you provide more value defensively, that offsets a few things. And I think that the same is true for Billy Hamilton, who uh, has never had a great on-base percentage, but was signed to a minor league contract with a chance to win the center field job in spring training, especially if Steven Duggar gets hurt or the Giants don't feel comfortable sending Mauricio Dubon out to center field. They can put Billy Hamilton out there for the first month or two of the season and uh, they can change games with his speed on the base pass. And maybe he's versatile as a fifth or sixth outfielder for this team. And then the other guy who I'd really focus on is Tyler Heineman, who uh, only has 11 career at bats, uh, came up with the Marlins last season, 28 years old, but – now that Aramis Garcia is going to miss six to eight months following hip surgery, Heineman, a non-roster invitee as a catcher, becomes the favorite to win the job behind Buster Posey. And, uh, you know, with the Giants looking to prioritize triple-A opportunities for Joey Bart and make sure uh, that he gets everyday options uh, in the minor leagues or everyday plate appearances in the minor leagues, uh, Heineman is a guy who will be on everyone's radar this spring as someone uh, who the Giants certainly hope performs and earns his way onto the roster.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see Bart maybe as a September call-up, but you know, with him only, you know, so young in his career, you really don't want to stunt his development and force him to be in a situation where he's going to be exposed when he's not entirely ready for the league. Plus, he's, you know, you got to consider that you don't do you want to have this conversation yet about you know him getting at bats and then force that conversation about you know is it his turn in terms of Posey and then sort of have that entire shuffle. So I think Posey right now, like the job is certainly. His for at least heading into the season, you never know what could happen by season's end. But I'm very interested in Heinemann just because, you know, he has great contact ability, great play discipline from what I've seen. I looked up what his last couple seasons have been. Since 2017, he's walking about 10% of the time with a 290 batting average, which, you know, he could essentially uh, turn into an incredibly valuable asset for the Giants going forward, especially when it comes to wanting to protect Posey's legs.
1: Yeah, very similar player to Steven Vogt, even though Vogt had uh, the, the great career already. Uh, just the value that he provides is a left-handed option at the plate. He's a switch hitter. Um, you know, he's a little defensively versatile, has some limited minor league experience at first base, but high on-base percentage guy. I think that there's some power there in that bat with Heinemann. And so uh, I think that best-case scenario, he has a season similar to what Vogt had last year.
0: And another guy that I, I kind of just wanted to touch on, I'm not entirely sure about his prospects to actually making the major league roster, but there was a, just a snippet of information that I wanted to throw in there is Darren Ruff. Uh, since He hasn't played in the major since 2016, spent the last three seasons in uh, Korea. But when I was looking at his splits, they were really like shocking to me because I was looking at his lefty splits and in 318 plate appearances... He's a 299 average with a WRC plus of 150. And that's like a decent amount of time. So I I knew he was sort of known for hitting lefties, but that was kind of shocking to me. I don't know if he would make the major league roster just because of, you know, he doesn't really have the positional versatility that a Yolmer Sanchez will or a Wilmer Flores will. But that did just jump out to me in terms of potentially being a guy that we do see later down the line just because he has that ability to hit left-handed pitching.
1: It would not shock me in the slightest to see Darren Ruff open the season as uh, the AAA Sacramento Rivercats first baseman or left fielder and then just absolutely crush PCL pitching to the point where the Giants have to take a look at him before the deadline. I just think uh, that would make so much sense because he does hit lefties well and he's going to be in a situation – uh, in the Pacific Coast League, assuming he would be willing to go to the minors uh, at the end of spring training, that uh, that so many guys have thrived in, and it's a hitter's atmosphere. And someone like Russ coming back from Korea get readjusted there, and then work their way back to the big leagues.
0: I think we could you know go on and on about uh, the various guys that the Giants have signed uh, to minor league contracts, but we're sort of hitting on the, the one hour mark here. And just to wrap it up, like like I mentioned, there are still potentially moves that the Giants. Could make between now and the beginning of the season, but for the most part, this is, you know, while nothing is set in stone, this is going to be a majority of the pieces that we see heading into the season. What would you give this Giants offseason? Ter- if you have to give it a grade, what would you give the Giants? And I've been oh. juggling
1: a lot with this a lot. So. <laughs> I'm I I, w- I wouldn't grade it I wouldn't grade it until the end of the year. That that is what I would say to that because there's no way to judge until you know how these things play out. I I think that they have accomplished some goals. Uh I think that they would have liked to have done more, but the one thing that I will say and the reason that I don't want to grade it until the end of the season is Farhan Zaidi and Scott Harris are constantly going to be looking at ways to kind of turn the roster, improve it, figure out Uh, incremental uh, edges they can gain on the margins of the roster. And so last year, you don't see Kevin Pilar until the first week of the season. Mike Yastrzemski isn't acquired until the last week of spring training, and even then no one knows his name. And those two guys turned out to be two of the biggest offensive forces for the Giants. So I would say that the offseason, even though pitchers and catchers are reporting, uh, is not over yet, and and that it's very difficult to judge uh, until the end of the season.
0: I right, so you're going with the very political answer with that one. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, I, I give a lot of hot takes usually, and my writing is full of analysis. But uh, that one, I, I'm very careful just because, uh, you know, you, you cover the team on a daily basis, and you typically view things a little bit differently um, just just from a perspective of, you know, you, you can't throw in the towel until the players work up a sweat. And, and I think that uh, you owe it to – um, the people that you cover, to be fair, and look, I, I, b- I believe in grading them, and I definitely will. I'll give out mid-season grades at the All-Star break, and I'll uh, I'll give out uh, very honest assessments at the end of the season. But uh, until we get through the trade deadline and, and get closer to the end of the season, it's going to be still hard to judge what the Giants have accomplished over the last calendar year.
0: Yeah, because when you think of you know some of the – as you mentioned, the Pilar deal, and that wasn't done until – the first week of the season, I go back to, you know, the Drew Pomeranz deal where if you just look at that from the perspective of you're just signing him, then that's one thing. But when you end up seeing what that deal eventually became, then the perception on that deal does shift considerably. Yeah, Yeah, I think in this offseason in particular, considering, you know, how there's this potential for a lot of moving pieces later down the line, I think that, you know, a lot of this... In, in terms of if this was to be assessed the grade, it would very much fluctuate based not on what's going to even not even in April and May, but sort of as you get later and later in the season in terms of what, as I mentioned, what a Gausman could turn into or what a Smiley could turn into if the Giants do decide to go down that route of flipping them for future
1: assets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that.
0: But that's sort of all I had in terms of the general off season recap. Was there anything that, you know, we may want to touch on something that we may have missed?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I think we've pretty much covered everything, and I think uh, there there will be a lot more to cover in future episodes when uh, when hopefully hopefully I'll be welcomed back here. <laughs>
0: I might have to alter that intro a little bit because I don't know if I could come with that same enthusiasm all the time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, that's okay with me. I I think uh, a, a humble introduction uh, might might do me better.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time out.
1: Awesome, thank you, Justice. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you to Kerry for coming on today's episode. You can find him at KO underscore Crowley on Twitter as well as Giants Kerry on Instagram. You can find me at Just Delos Santos on Twitter as well. Although this episode is coming out on a Tuesday, we will be releasing episodes weekly throughout spring training. But until next time, peace, 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 peace.